Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We put a call into one of New York's most prominent public health experts this week to ask about the coronavirus. No one can predict the future with certainty. What we do know is that there is a risk that this could get very bad. And therefore, we need to do everything possible now to reduce that risk. It's already very bad for the economy, and in particular, the travel industry. Well, the initial reports are that it's the biggest blow since 9-11. I would argue it's even bigger. This week on the WCBS 880 In-Depth Podcast, how much bigger and how bad is very bad? Hello from Studio 11B in the WCBS Hudson Square Studios in Lower Manhattan. I'm Tim Scheld with Peter Haskell. Hi, Peter. Hey, Tim. I'm the news director at WCBS 880, responsible for helping steer the coverage of stories we cover. And Peter is one of our veteran reporters. And Peter, this story has been somewhat of a challenge to cover, isn't it? We've got geography. We've got intensity. We've got growing cases. We've got health care workers. Think about this. The first case in New York State was diagnosed on March 1st. The second case came on a Tuesday, the 3rd. Since then, more than 200 cases in New York State, and we've got them in New Jersey and Connecticut and all over. So they said it was going to get bigger and it was going to get worse. And that has come to fruition. And that's what the 880 In-Depth this week is all about. We brought together two uh, experts on two different topics this week uh, to talk about two points of, uh, of interest to us. Peter Greenberg is our CBS News travel expert. You're going to want to hear him talk about the economic impact of coronavirus. But also, what about decisions you might have to take? Are you going to fly? Do you want to fly? What about a cruise? But first... Tom Frieden has a resume as impressive as anyone in the public health field, Peter. Tom Frieden is a former CDC director in the Obama administration. He was a former New York City health commissioner under Mike Bloomberg. He's now the president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. So the first question to Dr. Frieden, tell us about the significance of the designation that just occurred that the coronavirus outbreak is now, in fact, a pandemic. A pandemic is a disease which is spreading widely in multiple countries. And uh, about three weeks ago, um, I and others began recognizing that this has become a pandemic. The World Health Organization had already declared it something called a public health emergency of international concern. And I think their concern was, would it cause unnecessary, excessive concern to call it a pandemic. Calling something a pandemic doesn't say it's going to be terrible. 
There have been pandemics that are relatively mild. The 2009 influenza pandemic, for example, um, was very hard on younger people, and tragically, many children died during that pandemic. But overall, in that flu season, fewer people died than in an average flu season. So saying something's a pandemic doesn't mean that the sky is falling. It does mean we need to take it very seriously. A big question that we see uh, asked often is, should we have seen this coming both uh, uh, from a governmental point of view and from, uh, you know, just a a citizen point of view, uh, what what has happened with the coronavirus? Uh, I don't think anyone could have predicted that this would happen uh, uh, even four months ago. However, we do know that infectious disease, disease threats emerge and spread. On average, there's one new microbe identified each year, and 2020 is off to an early start. From the time we saw the kind of devastating outbreak in Wuhan, China, I think all of us in public health have been very concerned that this could happen in other places as well. We've seen an exponential growth in cases in the past week. What do you expect in the next week or the next month or the next six months? No one can predict the future with certainty. What we do know is that there is a risk that this could get very bad. And therefore, we need to do everything possible now to reduce that risk. We'd rather be safe than sorry. We'd rather overreact than underreact. And the evidence suggests that the sooner we act, the bigger the impact can be on reducing the impact going forward. So I assume you would be, you're in favor of uh, what you've seen happen in, in New York with respect to Governor Cuomo and the state health commissioner uh, in this strategy of surrounding uh, that uh, affected community in New Rochelle. Good strategy? It really depends. Uh, it depends on how communities are engaged and empowered and supported. What we have learned from other infectious disease outbreaks is getting the engagement, participation, and support of the community is essential for a successful measure. So it's not even so much about the what is being done as the how it gets done. And it's crucial that the public health professionals are in charge of the response because there are many decisions that will be needed to be made. And those decisions will depend on the data that's coming in. And that data is coming in by the hour, by the day, we're learning more about this uh, infection. And the more we learn, the better we can protect people. Well, that brings up a point about the New York um, process uh, of this containment zone that it was described as yesterday. There seemed to have been some mixed messaging. People were confused by that term, you know, and it's no criticism as to how it was rolled out. But it seems to me uh, what you said about uh, how it's laid out and whether there's community involvement, it almost seems like the community was somewhat confused. Was this a lockdown, not a lockdown? Now, the governor went out of his way to explain what it wasn't, but it's still, it's a pretty extreme uh, term uh, to be using here. Is that the kind of thing that you think, not asking to be critical of anyone, but I'm just wondering whether that mixed messaging is something that you see from afar that's concerning? I think the broader point here is that we need to level with the public, tell people what we know, when we know it, and Uh, recognize that there will be concern, but the more we can give people concrete things to do, the more we can recognize that we're all in this together. There is an enemy here. The enemy is a dangerous microbe that is 
as far as we know, new to the world. It didn't exist spreading from person to person until November or December of last year, and now it is spreading all around the world. And all of us can do something to help confront it. We can wash our hands more often. We can cover our mouth and nose when we cough or sneeze. We can stop shaking hands for a while. We can be sure that we don't go out if we're ill because we may infect others. Healthcare systems also need to get ready because we are seeing healthcare systems in many parts of the world rapidly swamped by the number of patients who come in, and healthcare systems really need to be ready for that. While we're talking about the New York situation, most of the cases are around New Rochelle, and many of those cases seem to stem from one person, an attorney in New Rochelle. Is there a way to explain whether this guy was some kind of super carrier, or was he just very sick and very social? There's a lot of things that we still don't know about how this virus is spread. And that's one of the things that we really have to learn as rapidly as possible. For example, does it spread from children? We don't know. Does it spread readily from people who don't have symptoms? We don't know. Are there what are called super spreading events? And there do appear to have been some in hospitals. Why has it spread so much on cruise ships? Is that because there are contaminated surfaces that people are touching? And really, we don't have answers to those questions. And because we don't have answers, it's difficult for us to target our actions to protect people as effectively as possible. That's why the public health professionals need to be given the space to do studies, which will take weeks to figure some of that out. Is this, we talked about the flu and the fact that the flu is deadly every year. Is this more contagious than the flu? Is it more serious than the flu? What do we know? There are similarities and differences between this virus and the influenza virus. This is a new virus, and one of the biggest differences is that we still don't understand so much about this. So we don't know if it's going to spread more widely than the flu. We don't know if it will make more people sick than the flu. We don't know if it will have a seasonality as the flu does in our environment. There's a lot we don't know. And of course, when there are things that we don't know, it's, it's, it's um, scary because we'd, we'd like answers to that. And we'd like answers now. We hope there will be answers soon. But at least we do know that there are certain things that we really need to do. For example, uh, we, we really should stop family visiting nursing homes, except if it's absolutely necessary. Um, there, the risk of this virus sweeping through a nursing home is quite high. And we're seeing that in Washington State. Uh, and um, uh, we want to prevent that from as many places as possible, because one thing we know is, like influenza, this virus is much harder on older people, particularly older people who are medically frail. We see, especially in this area, a lot of schools, um, and even on the collegiate level, have made determinations that they've either expanded spring break or they are having online classes for the rest of the semester. Some parents uh, find that to be extreme. What, what's your thinking about it? For all of those measures, the balance is what's the estimated cost and what's the potential benefit. For colleges, which already do a lot of things online, there's not a big cost to going entirely online, and there's a major potential benefit if you're protecting not even primarily your students who are younger, but your faculty, your staff, all of your environment. For 
uh, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, that's a much more complicated calculation because the cost is much higher, not only lost learning, but substantial social disruption. And the benefit is quite uncertain. Since we don't know whether children spread this, we don't know whether closing the schools would actually have a significant health benefit. Now, there may come a time when people, the staff and teachers, uh, don't feel comfortable uh, coming to school or being at school. That's a different question. And uh, I think one of the underlying principles we have to focus on is protecting vulnerable people, people who have underlying health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, uh, kidney disease, lung disease, and people who are older and, and older isn't just about age, it's about your overall health. Uh, people who are older and medically vulnerable really need to be avoiding contact with others from this point until we have a better sense of what's going on or more tools to protect people. So what about trying to stop the spread? Public health officials have called this social distancing. They don't want people gathering in large groups. This is something we asked Dr. Frieden about in particular. You're talking about social distancing. We've got a, a number of things coming up. The St. Patrick's Day Parade, the NCAA Tournament, Major League Baseball is starting. A couple of things. How would you assess those kinds of events and whether to hold them? And does it matter if it's a basketball game inside versus a baseball game outside? These are really good questions that aren't simple answers. But a large gathering inside, like Madison Square Garden, I don't think it is responsible to continue that at this point. There's just too high a risk that many people could get infected there, and then they could go on to amplify that elsewhere. So indoor sporting events with large crowds in areas where uh, coronavirus is spreading, I think, should continue, but without the spectators present, as they're doing in many other countries. In fact, I think doing that is a no-brainer. In contrast, uh, outdoor events like a marathon are, are something more of judgment call. Um, there is substantial evidence that the risk of this spreading outdoors is drastically lower than the risk of, of it spreading indoors. At the same time, there's a lot of uh, detail about these events. People may cluster together very closely. Um, and uh, maybe waiting um, in, in places in large crowds. So I think that's more of a judgment call. And again, the principles here are what's the estimated cost, not, not only financial, but uh, societal, of changing or canceling something, and what's the potential health benefit, and how can we balance that as well as possible. What can you tell us about what you've seen or heard in terms of the coverage that you're in favor of or any advice to us on how to cover this kind of a thing? I think the coverage has generally been responsible and reasonably accurate. Um, one thing that I would emphasize is the degree to which we don't know so much about this, and we're learning more every day, sometimes every hour, being clear that this is what we know now, and we're trying to get more information as rapidly as we can, that's very important. But there are still actions that everyone can take now to protect themselves and others. Washing your hands, covering your cough, not going out if you're sick, and for healthcare facilities to be ready to safely surge, 
and to reduce uh, your um, the risk that there will be any infections spread to staff or patients in your facility. These are all things that we need to do now. And if you do have a health problem or you are older, uh, thinking about things like having three months of medications on hand in case there are supply chain problems, thinking about how you would care for somebody or be cared for if you became ill. These are all things that we can do now that can help make a difference. I want to ask you a similar question, just in terms of assessing the way the government has handled this. What is your sense, and how how could the government response be improved? Uh, I'm not in government now, so I'm not at the table, and I don't know what the discussions are. I do think that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, is a fantastic public health institution. They certainly had a problem with the test kits here. That should be looked at by an independent group, but the focus now should be protecting people as well as possible. The CDC website is the best place to go for information. It has a wealth of information on it, and I would like to see the top CDC professionals, Dr. Sam Shukit and Nancy Messonnier, reaching the public every single day. We keep hearing that people say it's going to get worse before it gets better. Two points to that question. Um, what's the timeline? And I know it's it's hard to say. Is this a matter of it's going to get worse because we're going to find so many positive cases because the tests are going to increase? Uh, or is this trauma going to go on for a matter of weeks and, um, and then calm for a, a particular period of time? It is likely that this will get much worse before it gets better. Um, by that, I mean it is likely to spread to more states, more people, more nursing homes, uh, we tragically are likely to see more deaths. Uh, no one can predict with confidence for how long that will happen. We know it will happen at different rates in different places, and that's why the response needs to be specific to different places. But um, uh, at some point, we will get through this, and um, we'll get through it with, we hope, uh, a better sense of being in something together, fighting together against a common enemy with safer health care, with better infection control, and maybe with some better personal habits. And it is important to remember that at least eight or nine out of ten people who get this infection will feel either no symptoms at all or only mild or minor symptoms. Let me ask you if there's anything that we didn't ask you that it's important to make sure that we are left with from you. No, I think we've covered all of the important points. Thank you. COVID-19, now a pandemic, has spread across the world because of people carrying it from China to, at last count, as many as 114 countries. So a big focus clearly has been on keeping a watch out for people traveling who are carrying the virus. And to avoid risk, many people are simply not traveling. That's where we began with Peter Greenberg, the CBS travel expert and host of the Daily Eye on Travel. I mean, how big of a blow is this? Uh, has this been to the travel industry, Peter? Well, the initial reports are that it's the biggest blow since 9/11. I would argue it's even bigger, and the reason for that is if you go back to 9/11, in the immediate aftermath of that, Americans first, first of all weren't traveling for about five days because all the planes were grounded. But then when they did start traveling, most Americans didn't want to travel, especially over large bodies of water, to go anywhere. They were worried about terrorism, so they stayed home. In this situation, it's even worse because they don't want to travel anywhere. Uh, the subtext is they don't want to go anywhere and then be quarantined. So we're seeing a complete withdrawal from travel. 
uh, the the market has essentially collapsed. Future bookings don't exist. Uh, the cruise lines right now, with very very few exceptions, have more cancellations than reservations. Uh, the airlines are reporting that in March and April they're expecting a 70% drop in their revenue, which is unsustainable. Uh, you're dealing with hotels that are dropping between 11 and 20% in occupancy, and in certain locations, 50 to 60% in occupancy. And in certain other locations, they're just closing the hotels. And we're seeing this start almost as a domino effect uh, now across Europe. Of course, it started in Asia, but now it's in Europe. And, uh, and, and it's starting to happen in the United States. Peter, on a local level here in New York, I think Peter Haskell told me that um, the, the number of industry jobs in this city is... Uh, 300,000. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what will the ripple be in a place like New York? Uh, it won't be a ripple. It'll be a wave. And the reason for that, people don't realize that travel is the largest industry in the world. It's one out of every 10 jobs, but even more important, it's one out of every five new jobs. So it's the waitress. It's the guy who drives the cab. It's the guy who cleans, uh, you know, the, uh, the airplanes. It's everything that's related to the travel industry itself. And when you shut down one segment, you shut down everybody else. Uh, it's it's going to be tough. That's what I think of when you talk about New York. We, we know the auto show was postponed. And you think about all the hotel rooms and the people who work in those places and the cab drivers and all the things that you mentioned. What happens and how, what happens to those folks and do they get their jobs back? What does it take to recover? Well, first of all, remember, that's income that can't be recouped. That's revenue that just evaporates. That's a quarter of a year in terms of an annual report that just doesn't exist anymore. So you're going to see layoffs. You're going to see companies close. Uh, Rebounding from this, it may be easier than other industries because travel is, let's put it it what it is, it's part of our cultural DNA. Um, You know, the one saving grace here is that people don't just want to travel. We've developed into a society that needs to travel. And uh, we're not good at staying home. Uh, We really want to get out. if there's any saving grace in addition to that, it's that it's happening now and not in the middle of the summer. So there's still hope that we can stabilize the disease, the virus, we can figure out the economics, and bounce back within the next two to three months. Peter, but for the next six to eight weeks, I'm not hopeful. But the what, what makes this uh, somewhat unique is that the government has made statements trying to uh, keep people from um, some of these uh, travel avenues. And that's a remarkable uh, event, isn't it? It's remarkable. We have to go back to uh, 9-11 again and again in 2008, where the government actually bailed out the airlines and gave them $15 billion in loan guarantees. This is not the first time it's happened. Now, no U.S. airline has officially asked for the money yet. uh, But remember, we're at a point now where the definition of a successful travel company is the one that can lose money longer. So we're going to see some cracks in the dike very soon. What is this going to mean for maybe not the, the major legacy carriers, but the smaller airlines and, and some of these cruise ship companies? Well, believe it or not, in the last 12 months, we've lost 30 airlines around the world. Not airlines to bankruptcy. We're talking airlines to liquidation. And there's a little known fact or a little known process called holdback. What a holdback is, when you make your reservation on an airline and you use your credit card, that credit card company, whether it's American Express or, or Visa or MasterCard, takes out their commission and then transfers that money to the airline, with one exception. If that credit card company determines that the airline is on shaky financial ground and you made a reservation for five or six weeks ahead, which a lot of people do, 
Then they, the, the, the credit card companies then do something called a holdback, where they say to the travel provider, we're holding this money until that flight departs. When that flight pushes back from the gate, you'll get your money. Well, by doing the holdbacks, they are triggering, in many cases, the actual failure of the airline itself. There was an airline last week called Flybe in London that went into liquidation. And this is an airline that was responsible for more than 30% of the outbound traffic in Europe from Heathrow. When the airline went under, the reason why it went under, the catalytic reason why it went under, was that the credit card companies were holding back more than $50 million. Peter, in terms of uh, hotels, um, you know, they're in a different stratosphere because, you know, companies are telling are canceling meetings. Uh, it's more than just risk aversion. It's cancellations, right? Right. Now, certain contracts have protection clauses. Most of them don't. Uh, this is considered a force majeure, which means you're really not protected. It's the same thing applies to travel insurance. You know, you can't get fire insurance after the second floor catches fire. Today, if you wanted to go out and buy trip cancellation and interruption insurance for an upcoming trip, what a surprise. There's an exclusion clause in there for the coronavirus. So insurance is not really going to protect most travelers. And in the case of the meetings and convention business, people are out an amazing amount of money that doesn't come back. It's one thing to say you're going to postpone a meeting, but that goes into another quarter where you might have earned additional money from another meeting. So this is revenue that's essentially lost. But what if you have plans to travel sometime soon? It's a question we hear so many people asking. Peter? Well, I try to give it some context. Uh, While we're talking right now, there are 365 cruise ships that are sailing in the oceans of the world. None of them, I might add, are are in Asia right now. They've repositioned all those ships. How many of those 365 cruise ships were adversely affected by the coronavirus? The answer is three. That's less than 1%. And so what I tell my friends, and I'll tell you, is I'd rather take my chances on a cruise ship than taking a ride on the sixth train on the subway in New York. Uh, But the optics here don't really lend themselves to that because most Americans did what? They saw those ridiculously difficult pictures of that, you know, the diamond uh, princess being uh, uh, quarantined in Yokohama for two weeks. And the subtext is that people don't want to go anywhere and be quarantined. So that's one of the reasons why the cruise lines right now have more cancellations than reservations. But I would have no reservation, considering that symbol, of getting on a cruise ship tomorrow, assuming it's still going to sail. Because let's, let's, let's take a look at the economics here. A 6,000-passenger cruise ship that only has 500 passengers on board is not going to sail. The cruise line is going to either park that ship or cancel the cruise or both. Um, this week, we saw Mayor de Blasio uh, announce a strategy here for for this port, Red Hook and uh, and Manhattan, uh, where and I'm uh, I assume there'll be similar um, scenarios in other in other ports around the country of testing both uh, incoming passengers and outgoing passengers uh, to uh, screen them for uh, high temperature and and keep them from going on a cruise or take those who are coming off a cruise ship and send them for a medical evaluation. Is that a good idea? Uh, I think it is a good idea, as long as it's not an, an oppressive idea. I remember during the SARS virus crisis in Hong Kong, I got off the plane, my temperature was taken, and they tested me there, and they also tested me when I left. But it didn't stop me from going to Hong Kong. You know, the fact of the matter is with these cruise ships, people get norovirus, all kinds of things. It would seem cleaning these ships is a challenge. How, how do they go about doing this, and how effective can they be? 
Well, you know, they've done a very, very good job of cleaning it in the last couple of years. You haven't seen very many reports of the norovirus in the last, let's say, 36 months. I think I've, I've seen two cases in the last 36 months. What it really gets down to is the personal, pro, uh, the personal hygiene protocols of the passengers themselves. Uh, you know, we're hearing everything now. Oh, you got to wash your hands before and after you go to the bathroom or wash your hands before and after you go eat. Well, we should have been doing that anyway. Uh, the best thing that some of the cruise lines have done, and I get it completely, and you'll get it as well, is they've eliminated the buffets. Uh, you know, nobody who's sick should go to a salad bar. So at this point, if you're going on a cruise ship, your meal will be served to you individually by a waiter, uh, and that ship will be cleaned. So I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about that than I would have been maybe six months ago. And I just came back from a trip down to spring training and uh, to see the Mets down in Port St. Lucie. Came back uh, earlier this week, uh, flew on United, and um, it, it seemed like the uh, the seats and the cabins were the cleanest uh, they've ever been. Waiting for, um, when we got off, we saw an army of folks that were going to wipe that plane down. And it really has uh, established a really stepped-up protocol, hasn't it? It has. And the other thing is this. Even though it has... Uh, Passengers and travelers should be responsible on their own, and that is take your antiseptic wipes with you on the plane, wipe down all the surface areas that your hands are going to touch, that your skin is going to touch, the tray table, the armrest, the seat backs, and don't forget uh, the overhead nozzle from the air. Wipe that off as well. Uh, when you get to the hotel, same principle. Uh, the, the largest, uh, the biggest area of, of, of bacteria is the TV remote control unit. Wipe that off. Then the telephone uh, handset. Then go in the bathroom. The water glasses. Uh, put them both under hot water for two minutes. And then, you know what? Enjoy your stay. You know, it's interesting because we heard from the CEO of JetBlue who said they're giving out these uh, uh, sanitizing wipes to everybody who gets on a plane. Do you suspect we're going to be change, seeing changes going forward to try to keep these kinds of things, anything, from spreading? Sure, why not? I mean, I mean, look, I'd much rather not get a cold as well. So it's not just about the coronavirus. It's just basically maintaining a much more healthy lifestyle. And if the airline wants to hand me a sanitary wipe, I'll take it. Um, you know, an antiseptic wipe, why not? Um, why, uh, look, at this point... What the airlines, the hotels, and the cruise lines can do is provide assurance or reassurance. Uh, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a couple of weeks before people are emotionally ready to get back and travel again simply because fear is taking precedence over common sense right now. Uh, they're going to say it's an abundance of caution about the disease, but the reason why airlines are canceling their flights is because the bookings have collapsed. There are no forward bookings. I was on a flight last night that was only 40% full, on a flight that's normally oversold. Uh, and this is happening across the board. Peter, uh, I wanted to end on a, um, on a uh, optimistic tone, if, if possible. What opportunities might there be out there for those in the travel industry? For example, you know, in the New York metropolitan area, perhaps people uh, f uh, may enjoy staycations instead of, uh, you know, instead of getting on a plane or a cruise ship. Are there opportunities within the industry? Oh, many. Uh, there's a silver lining here if you're a smart traveler to take advantage of the fact that the, the law of supply and demand is firmly in your favor right now. I mean, the airfare from Boston to London right now is $250. You can't fly on the Boston to New York shuttle for $250. The airfare from Los Angeles to Hawaii is a whopping $99. Can we all say aloha? But remember, it's not about an opportunity for the industry to discount their way out of this problem. 
Uh, it's just the law of supply and demand speaking. But if you are in, look, if you're not 75 years old with a pre-existing respiratory condition, uh, that you're not a three-pack-a-day smoker, and you're not having mobility issues, for me, put me on the plane. I'm going. You know, and I'm curious, if people have reservations, they're not sure if they want to fly, they're not going to fly, they make a decision. What's your suspicion based on what's done in the past? Are the airlines are going to... Are they going to waive fees? Should people try to do that now? Should they wait out the airlines? What do you think? Well, if you're leaving tomorrow, that's that's one story. But most people don't make reservations for the next day, especially when it comes to their vacations. They're five, six, eight weeks ahead. And those are the folks that are in somewhat danger right now because when the airlines announced they were issuing waivers uh, to give you a free cancellation policy where you get your either rebooking for free without a rebooking fee or a refund without a penalty – they were applying that to tickets that were bought within the last nine days. Most people didn't buy their tickets within the last nine days. They bought it within the last nine weeks. So if you're holding a ticket for a flight in April or May, my advice is wait. Don't cancel now. Don't subject yourself to a draconian change fee. Uh, wait to see what happens. And then, let's say the situation is as bad or worse then as it is now, my guess is the airlines will have no choice uh, but to change their refund and cancellation policies, and that's when you can uh, uh, cancel or rebook without that penalty. Peter, what didn't we ask you that we should have uh, added to this conversation? Well, the most important thing is this, uh, and, and I said this before. Uh, there's concern and common sense. There's there's uh, panic and there's hysteria. I set, I tend to side on concern and common sense. We should be concerned, no doubt about it. But let's approach this in a commonsensical way, and let's look at the real numbers. Let's look at actually who is being a victim here in terms of their age, their medical history, and what they brought to the party that got them in trouble in the first place. And then let's see if that applies to us. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV or radio, but I will say this. I do listen to the doctors, and based on what I'm hearing and based on my own personal hygiene protocols, I'm going to the airport. So, Peter Haskell, would you fly with what you know today? That is a good question. Peter Greenberg makes it sound like it's not a bad idea. Last week, we asked the question of Erwin Redliner, another public health expert. He didn't think it was a bad idea. I would think twice. I wouldn't jump to go. But I do know that you flew this week. What was your experience? Just just came back from Florida. I took a quick trip uh, to and from to get in some spring training and see some family. I, I didn't need the spring training. I went to watch. I think you might need some spring training. too after this. Um, it totally was on my mind. I travel with my wife, and she's the smart one in the relationship. She brought her own wipes. She was just like what Peter said. She wiped the tray table down. She wiped the vents down, the armrests, uh, and and we took precautions. We were careful where we where we touched, where we where we, I didn't I didn't touch the magazines or anything in there. I was very very careful about it. And then as we got off the plane in Newark this week, uh, we saw an army of people that were ready to come on and clean the plane, and that made us feel better. But I mean, clearly the world is changing before our eyes, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you think about, you know, we talk about all these flu deaths all the time, and colds and flus, they can be prevented with the same kind of precautions, and you have to think going forward, people will probably 
enlist the same kind of aids they're doing now. Well done, Peter. 880 In-Depth is a weekly podcast. Glad to have you along listening. We'll be here every week. That's our promise. But we invite you to subscribe so you don't miss a thing from us. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and type in WCBS 880 In-Depth. Our thanks this week to Ray Martell, who helped engineer and bring us breaking news during the course of our recording. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.